Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With these young Bangladesh photographers saying, why is the news of Bangladesh always coming from Western cameras and Western reporters? This is not right. And I said, you're absolutely with you. It is not right. We must do something. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast, in this episode with Rupert Gray. Rupert has accumulated a lot of nouns over the years. Lawyer, adventurer, photographer, husband, father, probably sum him up best, but lumberjack, prospector and oyster dredger are also on the list. Rupert is, by his own admission, of a world that has now disappeared. His grandfather and father were both colonial governors overseas, and in this episode we discuss his lineage and how the positives and very importantly the negatives of that world and his upbringing have impacted him. This episode covers a lot of bases. We travel through a number of careers with Rupert, understanding how his origins and his travels have shaped him, before going on to discuss why the world needs adventure and ultimately how and why he ended up falling in love with Bangladesh. Before we begin, I'd like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetracked is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Rupert Gray. So, I actually um, regret not pressing record 20 minutes ago because we've just been talking about all sorts of things and getting to know each other. Um, which has been fascinating. We might have to repeat some of it now, but I think it would be very useful for you to just introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you do. Um, I'm Rupert Gray. Um, uh, I live in a cottage um, and several barns, a sort of thatched hamlet in Sussex. With my wife, I've been married to for 45, actually 47 years, um, uh, who has a very interesting background and story where she comes from. And uh, one daughter living here, one on top of the hill, and one about to be um, at the bottom of the hill just below us, with luck. Um, uh, and they've all, or, well, the last one's having a child, and the other ones have all got children. So our life now is revolves around expeditions that we try to do, but keep getting cancelled because the grandchildren have demands. Um, looking after the grandchildren, uh, continuing my practice as a lawyer on a relatively minor level now, uh, chairing a couple of, um, of uh, frontline charities, one in the... Uh, art sector, performing arts, and one in the uh, saving the ocean sector. 
Um, uh, and I'm an active photographer. I've just published a book on Bangladesh, and um, I'm having a very good time. <laughs> it sounds like it. And it, it's fascinating, and I think I don't normally do this, you know, see where it goes, but I think it would be really interesting to, over the course of this conversation, understand, you know, what has happened to you over the course of your life and career and how these things have happened to you, but maybe also some of your views on exploration, post-colonialism, and how expeditions should play out in the future. Um, we'll see where we go, but it seems like you and I will both have some strong views on all of that, and it might be an interesting conversation to have. But um, before we get into all of that, it would be good to understand, um, I'm always fascinated by people's access point. When did you start living an adventurous life? What was the trigger point for you? Uh, there's two questions. I, it started uh, pretty well the hour and the day that I finished my last exam when I was uh, just turned 19. Uh, and it was triggered by the books I'd read while I was at school, encouraged by uh, various particular uh, masters who um, uh, played a role in my thinking. Um, uh, and, uh, I mean, it's now, um, they're, they're now not very fashionable books, but at the time they influenced my direction of travel and they were books about the Klondike, the gold rush in Alaska in 1898. Um, uh, Jack London's stories of um, his life on the west coast of Canada um, uh, and, of course, in the Klondike. Um uh, and other authors who led extraordinary lives in what was then quite happily referred to as the colonies, or at least the empire. Um, and so where did I go? I went straight to Canada, and what did I do? Um, I had to become a lumberjack. I mean, what else did you do when you left school to become a lumberjack? The only question was how to do it. Um, uh, because I come from a reasonably, um, well, not so much well-connected family, but um, uh, we, my father, who was a doctor, knew a lot of different people in different walks of life, and one of them happened to run the largest logging company in Canada. Um, uh, and so I ended up by being a lumberjack on the top end of uh, Vancouver Island, um, uh, thinning trees for the first uh, two or three months and then felling trees. Um, uh, and uh, it was an eye-opener. I didn't know that people lived like that. Well, I sort of did, and I wanted to go and do it myself, and I did, and it was fantastic. I think one of the most interesting things about that is, um, you know, because you said to me before we started that you're from fairly sort of aristocratic stock and family were um, working overseas a lot in a kind of colonial capacity in the past, is the fact that your father approved of that as an option for you after school. That doesn't seem like a normal thing for a father to approve of at that time. I think he was one of those possibly then relatively exceptional men um, uh, who had a broad view of what life was about. And I think in a way, I mean, looking back, his training as a doctor was very, very, uh, are all different sections of society. Um, so um, uh, he spent a lot of time uh, as a volunteer doctor in the hop fields in Kent, which was then uh, uh, quite a major part of British life in a way it's no longer anymore. Um, uh, and, and, and there was a lot of poverty and a lot of difficulty there. And he used to spend his summers as a doctor um, doing that, and and his stories of that, I think, influenced my my view my view of the world to an extent. Um, he also, of course, going back to the second um, part of your question, uh, he was um, in the army during the war. He was in the RAMC as, as a doctor, and he served in India. Uh, within three days of getting married, nineteen forty-one, he was sent to India, and and um, didn't see my mother again until nineteen forty uh, Christmas, nineteen forty-five. 
when I was allegedly conceived, the very night he got home, um, and I was born in September 46. Uh, but um, uh, as a doctor in the war in India, um, uh, and his father having been a barrister in India, one of the first barristers to practice in Urdu, um, uh, uh, looking after, so story has it, I've never done the research, um, fighting for the rights of, British, of Indian citizens against the British authorities um, uh, in Lahore, which was then the major legal centre of, of, of India. Um, uh, and um, so I grew up with in a framework where the colonies and the war um, uh, and the, that sort of way of life known from the 30s was just part of the landscape. Um, and I played in bomb sites when I was young and the Germans were cast in the role that they were then cast in. Um, uh, and, uh, and off I went to a British public school. I mean, it was all really quite straightforward in a way, but it laid the ground for some very complex issues that arose later. Which were? Um, how I adapted or worked together my views about human rights and what was fair and what was right and what was just, which is why I became a lawyer, um, uh, with the, the colonial past that we have and the empire, the good bits of the empire, the difficult bits of the empire, and the bad bits of the empire, um, and the role that my family played in the way it worked, um, which I sort of dimly picked up in the way one does, um, uh, and to some extent indeed is in the history books, um, uh, made it complex to be a person who fought for human rights. And that's really the underlying theme of my book on Bangladesh, which is based on a human, or inspired by a human rights activist who's a good friend of mine and photographer. Um, uh, I didn't find any of it traumatic or anguishing. It just raised a lot of questions that made me think. And then I married a very left-wing liberal um, uh, woman, a girl, now a woman, um, who also has views. And uh, to say my children don't have views would be an understatement. <laughs> well, have views would be an understatement. Um, uh, so it's a, I mean, it was just very, very, it was exciting more than anything else. You know, all these things going on, this amazing world we lived in and how complicated and how right some of it was and how wrong some of it was, is. Yeah. And I think we'll come back to all of this, but I think we need more context before we go into the detail of it. As I understand it, you didn't become a lawyer immediately. I don't know, did you study law first and then go away again? Or how did the other travel photography expeditions fit into all of this? Uh, I, I, took a, I did my degree in law. Um, having had a year off when I went to Canada um, and did my lumberjacking and all the other things, um, uh, I then did a law degree, which I found um, uh, mostly extraordinarily dull. Um, uh, the international law was interesting, um, uh, and funny enough, Roman law I found rather gripping because it had such a huge influence on the world we live in today. Um, uh, and then I went off again. Um, uh, I couldn't. I couldn't have wanted to be a lawyer less. Uh, and I again the. The day I took my exams at the end of my time at UCL and the evening I was on a plane to Canada and I didn't come back for two and a half years. Um, and I didn't actually stay in Canada. I went off to become a prospector in the South Pacific, prospecting for copper uh, for a small Canadian company. Um, uh, and then went on to New Zealand where I spent six months climbing mountains and walking about 
uh, in Australia, I prospected for oil. I mean, how, how can you admit that these days? <laughs> uh, but it was a really amazing experience, quite quite formative in many ways. And then I wandered back through India, for um, uh, through the Far East, mainly in India, for uh, the following year. Um, because I thought on the whole I wanted to, to continue being an Englishman with an English family and an English home. Um, and that was a big decision. That, that was a moment, a fork in the road. When I was offered a choice um, uh, uh, with the oil company, they wanted me to stay and um, do a degree in geology and join the senior staff. Uh, and, uh, and I had one day to decide because it was the end of the camp in the desert. And I, I said, no, I want to be an Englishman with a professional life and a family and a cottage in Sussex or wherever, <laughs> which is the direction of travel. And I then went back. Uh, not quite sure what I would do. I then, I then became a journalist um, for a bit. Was that, was that to that point? No, I didn't. I went back to law. And then I took off again after I'd finished my qualifications. Um, uh, I took off again and I married Jan. Um, we went around the world for a couple of years. And, um, and I spent some time with John Blasher-Sell and his expeditions. Um, and then I, that's when I became a photographer and journalist. That was in 1979. This is such a fascinating life, and there's so much we could touch on, but I think the Indian side of things is really interesting, you know, your choice to go and travel through India and how that differed for you and how that must have felt, knowing that your family had spent so much time there. And the, and I use this word specifically rather than positive or negative, but kind of complicated past and relationship with that mm. place. How did that affect your experiences there? And what did you, well, what did you experience? Um, now that, that's a really interesting question, which I, I sort of circulate around in my mind, but don't that often talk about, at least not in those terms. Uh, one of the um, important aspects or answer, aspects of the answer is that there are a lot of things I didn't know about my family background at that point. I, of course, knew my father being in India, uh, and, I, uh, and I talked to him a bit. He didn't talk about it a great deal. I knew uh, not a great deal about my grandfather, um, uh, all I knew was that he, that he had been a lawyer in India. I didn't know any more than that. Um, and I certainly didn't know about the wider, uh, um, or my direct connection to the wider framework of the, of the, of the politicians and statesmen um, uh, in Britain in the 19th century that I came from. I, that all came clear later. Um, so I wasn't addressing at that time these questions. I was simply totally gripped by a world that was so different from anything I'd ever seen. Um, and I was gripped by its colour, uh, by the uh, the relationships that uh, I seemed to be able to strike up naturally and easily with um, uh, the uh, the people of India, um, uh, and the beauty of the landscape, and the the fact it was so far from the Western world that I knew. Um, and this was, and I, I have talked about this. I gave a lecture on this the other day. Um, uh, the first guidebook that was published, post-war guidebook, was. 1973, 1972, Tony and Sarah Wheeler. The first guidebook of the, if you like, for the hippie generation. Um, there was no internet. Uh, there was no directory of where you could stay um, or restaurants where you could eat. You depended entirely on word of mouth from other travellers or indeed locals. Um, and so it had an excitement of a novelty about it that I've never quite rediscovered um, uh, within a cultural framework. You rediscover it in expeditions in mountains, of course, um, when you're away from, um, away from the world. 
But that way in which um, uh, I responded to India, it was that kind of new excitement of a new experience, a new bit of life, um, uh, which was very, very powerful and uh, possibly never, ever quite so powerful again as at that time. And how old were you then? 22, 23. And it was my first experience in really big mountains. I mean, I, we went to the, the Annapurna base camp in January, which is kind of bonkers because the snow was well above our heads. Um, uh, and we had absolutely zero equipment. <laughs> I had a, well, I had was a large Tibetan coat, which weighed an absolute ton and about two tons when it was wet. Um, uh, but, you know, that, that kind of excitement was just um, uh, irresistible, really. And do you think that kind of, I mean, you've said you haven't found it again since in that set, in that same way, but... Do you think it is possible to still have experiences like that now? I mean, the world has changed. Um, it's possible to have the same excitement, but I think it'd be generated by a slightly different um, or experienced in a very different framework. Because traveling with internet at your fingertips um, and your home a click of a second away um, is a very different experience to um, uh, one in which your only contact with home or any other world at all, any other people, other than those you met on the road, um, was at the post restant um, post offices, where, which you picked up mail at once every three months, if there were, if there were, if indeed there was any, because <laughs> you never knew whether uh, everybody was going to write or if they had written, whether it was going to get to its destination. Um, so there was a. My family didn't know where I was for two and a half years, aside from the old moment. Not a single phone call. Phone calls were by appointment, and you had to sort of book it several hours or days in advance, and then you were lucky to get through. Um, so I don't remember calling her once in two and a half years. Um, I, all I got with these wonderful aerograms, which I've still got tucked to her in boxes somewhere in this library. <laughs> Do you look back on it wholly positively, when you rose-tinted, or was it just brilliant? Oh, it was brilliant. It was just beyond brilliant. It was just... Um, it echoed all the great literature I'd read, about uh, adventure and travel and novelty and dealing with difficulties and having excitement and falling in love and falling out of love. All the, every aspect of life was there. And it, and it was all true, all this stuff I'd read. I didn't have to make it up. I didn't have to imagine it. I was actually living it. Um, uh, and coming home was a big adjustment. It was also, of course, very exciting because London in the 60s and 70s, I mean, what, you know, what... what what else did it die for? That was also fantastic. Um, uh, but you, you were part of then a larger framework and you, you, that sense of adventure was a rather different thing. Um, it was a very, very good time to go up. Yeah, I'm sat here listening to you talk about it and I, I do envy it in lots of ways. I think I, try, I think about this a lot and try and work out whether or not I am just being naive or having those kind of rose-tinted spectacles. But... Yeah, I just, you know, I, I go on lots of amazing trips and have amazing adventures, but I do feel like they're never truly wild or raw. And I struggle to work out how we can create that now when, as you say, I mean, we're only, we're only a couple of years away from global internet. You know, Starlink everywhere. You can watch Netflix in Basecamp now. Yeah. Um now, those are very, very interesting points. Uh, and um, 
I think that um, exposure to surprise and novelty has been blunted by what's happened. And I think the other uh, really important difference between now and then, so ridiculous when I get to this stage of life and I start talking about about how it was so much better when I was young, which is what every old man always does. Um, and I'm trying very hard not to do it and trying to get difficult. <laughs> uh, uh, but what I, I do think, and, and actually this is not from me, this is from the younger generation, my children and their friends, of whom we um, have lots around. Um, and that is the change in the level of optimism. When I uh, sort of set off around the world, the world was, uh, to use a phrase, I don't know where it comes from, the world was my oyster. Um, it was um, it was all there. It was there was a lot of goodwill. There were, I, there were no terrorists, or if there were, they they weren't they weren't recognised all around. Um, uh, uh, there was no better nationality to be than to be British um, at that time, and there was no better um, uh, time to be optimistic because the war was over. Uh, the, the poverty brought by war was receding. Uh, there was a new wealth and a new excitement in in the air. Um, uh, the Commonwealth was um, uh, thriving and being important and um, uh, not changing the landscape, possibly changing the landscape, but it was a, a very benign force and it generated a lot of goodwill. Um, uh, and um, the, the, we all knew we were in for a better world. That was clearly going to happen. And then it, these apogee was in 1989 when the wall fell. And we all thought... You know, we're really we're now going to have a land of freedom, a world of freedom, and a, a world in which you've got free movement and freedom of thought. And our liberal values were emerging as the leading values in the in the world. Um, and basically, from then on, it was never quite so good. That atmosphere of optimism and excitement that the world was um, uh, a great place to be on, and that we were looking after it properly. And suddenly now with climate change when uh, and the the, uh, the rise of the of a, the changing political tides, let's put it neutrally, um, uh, has changed everything. Um, really in a, in a most radical way. And do you, do you struggle with that? Because I think it's so complicated and people of my generation, our generation, are talking about this all the time. And I think we bridge the generational gap of... Yes, you know, I, that I don't want to speak for the generation sort of below me in terms of age, but I think there's a lot of blame put on those who came before. And actually, I just think, well, as you've pointed out, you know, it's the post-war era and the world was your oyster and off you go. And I think we'd have all done exactly the same thing. Um, I'm sure, I mean, you in particular would, Matt. And, <laughs> and all the people that one meets in places like the Royal Geographical Society, um, they would have been there with, I mean, what, what the great exhibitions going on then. I mean, John Bashestell caught the moment of the time in the most amazing way and brought young people, gave young people their first real chance, people from a, a very different background to, to, to me and others in the RGS. Um, he provided them with an amazing chance to go and see the world. Uh, and I, uh, and we, we all loved it. And we, I was involved with it for 10 years. Um, and you know, I led one expedition, I was a photographer on several others, I was a trustee, um, as a lawyer, I, you know, I was involved in many different levels. Um, and that excitement of that of that time, um, uh, it's wrong to say it's dissipated, uh, but it's not there in, in the same way. 
Um, but having said that, you look at the stuff being produced by young people through organizations like the Royal Geographical Society and the Scientific Exploration Society and um, lots of other similar organizations. Um, and young people having a fantastic opportunity. So it's absolutely a lot of great things going on. But I, I think the threats now are rather more prominent than they were then. Yeah, and our awareness of those threats. I feel like I actually recorded a conversation yesterday with um, Alistair Humphreys, who's a fairly well-known adventurer, yes. yeah, championing micro-adventures. And we were talking about the guilt. And I think, you know, I think part of why I envy generations that came before is I feel like everything I do now has to have a bigger altruistic purpose. Otherwise, I can't justify it. And that gives me immense purpose. I think lots of my peers feel like that. You know, but how is this helping the world? But how is this helping the world? And so it's almost like we can't just go on expedition because we want to anymore. Um, and I think that is an unsolvable problem. I think that's just a hard truth. It's a hard reality. Do you think it's a function, Matt, of um, uh, the fact the world's a much smaller place, with, uh, or to put it another way, it's got a lot more people on it, um, uh, and the true wildernesses are, are now a lot rarer than they used to be? Um, which I, I think is a part of that. But it also concerns me that, that the idea you, you, you can no longer do something as in an expeditionary context, um, you can no longer do something just for the excitement and the sheer joy of being on a planet and being alive and being young. Um, uh, and it was, it was that that I picked up from the literature of the time, particularly the 30s, um, and which uh, informed my decisions. And well, it's hey. sad that that's no, no longer the case. No, and I, I think you're right to fear that, and I absolutely fear it. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to do the kid's speech too much, but I've got children, and I think, God, I hope they can go and see half the things I've seen and have yeah. those experiences. I mean, it's, it's completely, you know, the, the formed the person I am today, is 15 years of travel um, under various different banners, you know, journalism, filmmaking, photography, mm. etc., but, I mean, the point really, what we're actually talking about is the carbon impact, is the climate change impact. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, you know, this is a bit of, we can try and solve this problem together now, but um, <laughs> I think what we're actually talking about is flying. And this is a question I don't know the answer to. You know, when you were young, I guess it would have been the 60s, so probably, but were you flying everywhere or were you ever going over land? I mostly went over land. Um, flying, flying was a function of having a job that you had to get back to, and therefore you had a, a finite time frame. And uh, I was going to mention this before, but uh, 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 on why you do things. I remember when I first, when I came back from my first major long round the world trip, when I was then, what, 27 or something, um, and I wanted to carry on going on expeditions. Um, but I wasn't part of the expedition world. I wasn't at that stage involved with the RGS. And, I, and there was no thing like John Bash's tale later built. Um, uh, and so I used to look at the map sitting in London, in my office, um, and, and find the first, the nearest mountain range where there was a big gap between roads. And then I'd say, I'm going to walk there. I walk from one side to the other. I used to arrange for somebody to pick me up at the other end. Um, uh, and it never occurred to me that there was any other reason for doing it other than the fact that I wanted to do it. Um, uh, and I think we were all like that then. 
Um, and of course, then you had to fly because you had a limit of one month to, for a holiday if you were lucky. Um, and I remember too, and this did change my um, direction of travel quite a bit. Uh, the place I chose to walk across was Ethiopia on one occasion in 1973. So, and it was the gap between the roads was 350 miles. Um, uh, what nobody told me, and then nobody knew, was that there was a famine in the middle of Ethiopia at that time. Ten years before the big famine we all know about that gave rise to, to um, uh, Live Aid, Band-Aid, which was the first one I've forgotten. Um, uh, and um, uh, when I realised this, I had nothing to eat for a, the last week, so I came out quite thin um, uh, and quite sort of um, not shaken, but uh, it, I was revising my views about what the, what the world had to offer and what it was like. Um, and, and, and then we had the famous interview with Claire Bershinger, who was incidentally one of John Bashir Snell's Operation Raleigh women, of whom there were many. Um, and when she famously said on television to the BBC, when asked, she was a nurse looking after the dying in the famine. Do you remember this? And she famously uh, was asked by the BBC reporter, what does it feel like having to choose which child is going to die in the night by you feed one and not the other? And to which her reply, this had hardly been said, this word, at that point, on, on air, she said, what the fuck do you think? And, and we just all thought, she's the person. <laughs> That's something that um, uh, that we all like to have said and probably wouldn't have done. Um, uh, and then you suddenly started beginning to think, okay, so what do we do about it? Well, Band-Aid was one of them. Live Aid was the next one. Uh, and I'm now involved in another um, one that's uh, coming out of... Um, uh, the concert for Bangladesh with George Harrison in 1971. Uh, I take that us into the Bangladeshi story, but um, uh, that's turning around your experience to making the world a better place, which is where you started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, and I think I do want to go down that road. And I, you know, I think we'll come back to it in a second. But I think just to, to kind of finish the point before as well is it, that whole idea of slower travel. I think that was something that, you know, you guys were doing a lot back then is yes of course you were flying occasionally or regularly but maybe the problem i'm sort of making this up on the spot maybe the problem now is just well, i often think this about myself how busy and important i think i am um <laughs> whereas actually you know there's a bit and this is sort of the beauty of getting slightly older is i'm starting to realize that i'm not actually very important and i'm only busy because i think i am um and really, I mean, and this is a privilege, but it is a privilege that people could create for themselves. I recognize that it's a very middle class privilege, but it's something we could all aspire to is if you actually did want to take two months and change your life and rent out your house and not work where you work anymore and travel across Europe and go and hang out in Jordan or go down to Africa, that is doable. Oh, it is very doable. 
and a lot of young people are doing it. And they're usually doing it with a um, a reasonably well defined, even if it develops, it goes along cause. Um, and I think the huge explosion in charitable um, or, or in, in charities and NGOs, organisations that have a clear direction of travel in the, along these lines we're talking about to make the world a better place, they're providing fantastic opportunities for well, not just young people, for everyone. And I think that is an extraordinarily positive and wonderful development. Of, uh, I had an interesting one the other day, which I'll throw out. Um, my son-in-law is a, um, an iconographer. He's a, a, a liturgical artist, and he's got a studio here in the village. Um, and um, uh, two bishops came to bless it along with a lot of other people for the church. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, very, I'm a great fan of the church, but I'm not hugely involved. But I went in there, and by the time I met the, um, the 15th person in holy orders, uh, I, I met this lovely woman, and I said, my God, not, a, not another holy person. <laughs> she laughed, and she said, tell me what you do. And I told her. And then it turns out what she does um, uh, in the church is very active in a charitable sense. And she said, and the world is such a positive place for me, and all this negativity in the press um, uh, not necessarily negativity, all the bad news coming out in the press. If if people knew what really went on at ground level in this country, they'd be blown away. People doing ordinary people doing ordinary things um, for ordinary other people, but in a, a really positive, giving way to make the world a better place. And I came away thinking, God, that's, I'm so glad she said that. It does slightly change the colour of the landscape from the perspective of the headlines of The Guardian or the FT, which is what I tend to read. Well, it can be hard to remember that, but then I think that's one of the great joys of travel um, because it's so easy. You know, I could sit here and respond and say, yes, but all of those horrible things are happening that we're reading. And it's like, yes, of course they are, but the world is a very, very big place. And that was my, my experiences of Africa were a lot like that. I went in with your classic English white boy attitude of expecting certain things and thinking certain things when I was 21, 22. And I worked there on and off for three years, but mostly on. Um, and I just couldn't believe actually how positive and how happy most people were. Yeah. I mean, we were being, you know, we were going to some interesting places. I won't go into the detail of it now, but um, largely it was a positive experience. That's so enriching, that, though. Yeah. I mean, is that what motivates you for your next journey? Yeah, well, that's, yeah, good question. I mean, I um, we're all motivated by different things, aren't we? And I think that's something that, you know, 160 interviews just on the podcast have, have taught me is <laughs> we've all got different reasons to travel. But um, I'm a people person. You know, I love animals. I love the natural world, et cetera. I love them. But for me, traveling solo doesn't interest me in any way. Um, traveling with people, but also traveling to meet people. I was going to say the latter. Yeah. Um, traveling solo is essential to the latter because yes. it's only when you're traveling solo that you, not only, but you, you tend to, you, you meet more people. And I worked out that very differently when I was traveling in the, in the 60s and early 70s. Yeah. Uh, that solo travel was, um, was, that was the way. And, and then you just meet so many people. And I saw friends, a lot of people I met in those days. But it's also your attitude towards it. I think that, you know, I'm a big, I've fallen in love with Wadi Rum in Jordan. And the landscape there is spectacular, but it's the people, it's the Bedouin particularly. And there are some issues there. I mean, big issues. I've never met a Bedouin woman. Maybe I've met two, but mostly they're, you know, I'm not shown where they are. I'm not um, invited to meet them. Um, That's a deep, dark problem. 
for another day, but I've been out to the same place four or five times. And first time I was there working in film, and so I'm meeting guys who are essentially working as our fixers, Bedouin, and they're very, you know, this is a commercial professional relationship. Anyway, cut a long story short, by the fifth time I'm there, I'm just traveling because I love that place and I'm interested in the story and the issues that are there. Suddenly I'm staying in their tents with them and then some of them have got houses back in Run Village. Suddenly I'm being invited to stay in their houses and have dinner with them and sleep there. And that is a wildly different experience from paying a guy to take you through the desert for a few days to being invited into his home, you know. He puts my dirty clothes in his washing machine. I know. And, and how do you deal with the fact that that puts you into a, a position of, of, of such privilege compared to the rest of um, uh, most of the rest of the human race? To be able to do that, to have done it, and to have been accepted in these different worlds, that is, you've used the phrase aristocracy before, to me that's the real um, uh, a mark of, of aristocracy, that you have been able to do that. Uh, by a combination of luck, judgment, and determination. Well, um, you know, the, the, that's the ultimate for me. Well, I think, I mean, if you, you know, I get the sense speaking to you that we can kind of say anything and talk it through, and if we disagree, we'll disagree, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, it would be so easy to, again, sit here and think, well, I don't come from much, and you have family who were doing this, this, and this. But actually, that you know, you and I are much more similar than most mm. people. I mean, I, I think that one of the greatest, the biggest, most obvious signs of privilege is having traveled. Mm. Like the idea that you can travel as a concept is so alien to the vast majority of humanity um, outside of necessity. But, you know, the idea that going on holiday, that's a privilege that most people do not have. And yeah, of course, you know, some people do it in super yachts and private jets, but largely, actually, what we're talking about here is... Um, going out to Wadi Rum. I mean, I I have quite strong views on this and I'm welcome, I welcome um, emails that disagree, but it's actually cheaper to go to Wadi Rum for a week and spend time in the desert with the Bedouin than it is to go to Ibiza for a week and go partying. You know, quite a lot cheaper. And all you have to do is go back three years in a row, work with the same guide, and suddenly they'll invite you to meet their family and spend time in their yeah. house. I didn't do anything special. I just got to know somebody who decided we were friends rather than just... Mm. Matt, well, that, that, that's very parallel with my uh, time in Bangladesh, although that was over a longer span. Um, and I've now been back, I think, probably 12 or 15 times. I never counted. Um, but uh, it started off rather like you started in Wadi Rum. It was almost by chance I was there. Um, uh, and then I, I, I met um, Shahidul Alam, who became a good friend. Um, uh, uh, and what he was doing kept on drawing me back until I became a part of the part of the scene, if you like, in the photographic community in Bangladesh, which is particularly lively and powerful and um, uh, and creative and and exciting. Back to <laughs> I can never get away from it. Once I'm excited, I'm away. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how did all of that start then? Where, where did the Bangladesh saga begin? Well, it finally started with the traveling with children, um, and we were on the road for six months with the children. When they were five, eight, and eleven, um, uh, and we uh, we went to f six different countries. In each country, I had a special expedition designed around them, but quite sort of a, a real expedition. It wasn't a, a pretend one. 
um, and he might be on horseback through mountains or down canyons or or on a or on a boat or up a river on a, on a boat, all those sorts of things. Uh, interspersed with staying in really quite upmarket, nice places, so they had a sense of um, a balance about the, the, the experience. And the last one was Bangladesh because we had friends there, and they said, "Come and stay." And I said, oh, "What do we do?" And they said, "Well, I, what do you like to do?" And I said, "I like to see the Sundarbans." Actually, it was Jan who said that, to be fair. Um, and so down we went to the Sundarbans, and there we met um, Shahjul Alam on a boat. And um, the boat was the um, election boat for the man standing for parliament, who was collectively known as the king of the Sundarbans. Um, uh, he was actually a sort of pirate king, um, and he was eventually to be killed by the pirates some years, good many years later. Um, but he had been the leader of the freedom fighters in the 1974 war, which I mentioned before, against India. Um, and now he was standing for Parliament, and we were um, uh, we were on his election boat for a week. It was absolutely an amazing experience, and we got to know Shadow very well, and got to know the King quite well. He was he was known as a King. He wasn't a King in any um, conventional sense, uh, except he was very big, and everybody loved him. And wherever he went, people came to touch his garments in that wonderful way in the subcontinent. Um, uh, and um, uh, ten years later, literally. Um, I got a call from the British Council saying, would I come and give a talk in Dhaka on international copyright law? Um, uh, and, of course, that was triggered by Scheidel, because he remembered I was a copyright lawyer and a photographer. Um, and so I duly did that, and uh, that was very nice. The British Council paid all my expenses, which is always doesn't happen often, doesn't happen anymore at all, actually. <laughs> um, and then, um, of course, I had to go back because you can't not go back to a scene like that. It was absolutely and still is electric with these young Bangladesh photographers saying, why is the news of Bangladesh always coming from Western cameras and Western reporters? This is not right. And I said, you're absolutely with you. It is not right. We must do something. Um, uh, and not that, not that many years later, uh, the World Press Photo Awards was um, shown in, um, in Dhaka which was just unthinkable before that. And Shaidu was the chairman of the jury, a Bangladeshi. And that's now been, that's a continuing pattern. Uh, he's been very influential in that. And, and that, that sense of fairness and equity um, uh, in how Bangladesh is portrayed as a nation, uh, particularly after it was described by Henry Kissinger as being an international basket case in 1972, um, uh, 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 an impression that was reinforced by Western journalists and photographers. And suddenly these Bangladesh photographers are coming out saying, no, it's not like that, it's like this. And this is what you was published. And, um, uh, and, and it, it worked. And my book is the story of that, um, of, of, not so much how that happened. It's my, my personal take on um, being a part of that journey or witnessing that journey, combination of the two, really. And your involvement in that, you know, you're saying we must do something. How involved were you in that transition and how were you received as a white Englishman? Two different questions. Um, how was I involved? I was really a spectator. I was helpful in that I'm uh, a lawyer. Um, uh, and all photographers need a good lawyer. <laughs> um, they need a good lawyer partly to protect their rights, but also to make sure they're not treading on anybody's toes in the context of privacy which at that stage was a growing, changing animal and is now much more established with the help of that nice Mr. Max Mosley, you might remember. Um, uh, uh, and it's the stuff I still advise on to this day. Um, uh, so th I was quite helpful in that sense. Um, I had one exhibition there, or did I have two? I can't remember, maybe I had two. Um, so I was a sort of, you know, I was also a photographer um, 
uh, and I gave a lot of what Chardell described as copyright jam sessions in the then uh, place where they were taught, which was, I mean, it was just wonderful. It was so Bangladeshi and so unlike art classrooms. Um, uh, and um, and I used to go and, and just be there and talk about any legal issues I might have and why they weren't getting paid by the Bangladeshi press and why their copyrights were always being infringed. So to that extent, I was helpful. But otherwise, I was really um, a, a very good friend of Shahidul. But I suppose, really, I was a, a totally gripped spectator. Um, uh, and, of course, taking a lot of photographs of all the things that happened. Um, so that was good. Uh, what was your second question, Matt? Uh, um, uh, your experience, how was it altered by being a white Englishman? Oh, well, being a white Englishman. Um, I think uh, amongst the few gifts I've got is one that I, I don't really, um, I'm not really conscious of problems that people might have with me being an Englishman, let alone an English aristocrat. So it never really crossed my mind that I would be seen in any particular way other than just as a, a human being with some good stories to tell and a good capacity for listening to other people's stories. Um, uh, uh, and, and so I, it's interesting hearing Scheidel talk about it now. When we launched the book at the Frontline Club, um, which you should be a member of if you want. I am. <laughs> you are. <laughs> um, we launched the book at the Frontline Club three months ago, whatever it was, and Scheidel came. We had, and it was just a conversation between him and me. Um, uh, and he said in his foreword uh, that um, uh, what has an anti-colonialist like him got to do with uh, a, a, a sort of a, a scion of the whole colonial empire bit who goes around the place wearing britches and talking like a posh Englishman? <laughs> um, uh, and he said his answer was uh, that I'm, 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 I'm with them on the journey, or worse to that effect. Um, and he ended up by saying that um, the marvellous thing was that I emerged from the whole process a little bit less white than I was. And one of the people have said to me, can you really say, can you, can you get away with saying that about you? <laughs> and I just laughed and I said, he can get away with anything because I love him. And he's probably true. <laughs> it's, it's quite a nice gesture. I mean, it's said with such kindness and, you know, jest yeah. in a way. That yeah. It's... yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he said some lovely things about uh, my general approach to life and approach to photography. Um, so no, it was a uh, it was a, a lovely forward, absolutely lovely. Um, uh, and I had a great photograph of him there, looking looking like the the, uh, the rebel that he ultimately is, um, with a dark black beard and and uh, uh, and, and he's a very good looking man. Um, and that's been a very important relationship and part of my life. Um, uh, and Bangladesh has played a significant role in my. Um, the way I see the world, I think. So, you know, you're a very well-travelled man. Of all the places in the world that could have gripped you, why did Bangladesh grip you in the way that it did? Indeed. Indeed. I, I, I wish I could answer that. Uh, the answer I, 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 I like giving, because I've been asked that before, is that um, uh, when we landed there for the first time with the children, uh, one of the children was quite sick, and we were worried about her. Um, uh, uh, we were the only Europeans off the plane. <clears throat> And when we got to the exit um, for the airport, um, uh, which is glass doors, still still unchanged all these years later, it's in 30 years ago more, um, uh, the poor of Bangladesh were rank upon rank of them outside the airport um, because this was a, as good a chance of, uh, as any of getting a bit of backsheesh out of any European arrivals or any rich arrivals. Um, 
and over the door, in huge letters above these last doors, was the phrase, welcome to Bangladesh before the tourists get there. And I just thought, how can you, how can you say that? <laughs> uh, and uh, and we're still there years later. I think it's gone now. And you know, they still haven't got there. Now, that's what's so extraordinary. Um, there's something like, I did have the stats on this in my head, um, and I may not get it right. I think there's something like 400,000 um, what they call tourist arrivals, um, tourist arrivals every year in Bangladesh. Um, if you take um, India, um, if you take the world, it's 1.6 billion arrivals. So Bangladesh has 0.00 something percent of travellers. And most of those, of course, are coming to charities because there's more registered charities in Bangladesh than any other country in the world. So they aren't even actually tourists. <laughs> um, and uh, in answer to your question, you've got to go to places like that. I wonder that. I mean, that's interesting. That says a lot, doesn't it? There are more registered charities than anywhere else in the world. You know, it's clearly you obviously have a incredible relationship with the place and a profound love for it. But it can't be without its issues as well as its strengths and beauty. Correct. Correct. But yeah, the uh, the poverty is um, ground in your face from the day the hour you arrive. Um, uh, and you have to accommodate that, um, coming from a world where we just don't have poverty, anything like that. And it's not poverty they can do a great deal about. Um, uh, and I'm not comfortable photographing I have photographed it. I'm not very comfortable doing it. And after a lot of thought, I put two of my photographs of very poor people in, the, in my book. Um, uh, and the caption or the relevant bit of the text was how... Um, the children dealt with that at the age of five, eight, and eleven, because they had never seen anything like it, um, with all its graphic horror, particularly in those days of mutilated children. Um, uh, uh, and all you can do is to say, um, become aware of it, and import its um, importance into your understanding of the world and into your sort of daily appraisal of the issues that you face. Um, and make plenty of space for the charities that are actually taking active steps to do it and respect those parts of the government uh, that are also doing it. Um, and in fact, Bangladesh is now an economic powerhouse in a way it's never been before. So I think that all that is going to change, but it doesn't alter the difficulty uh, that as a traveller you contend with in, um, in being a part of that, and you are a part of it. It's not something you can get away from. And so what is it you're trying to say with this book, do you think? Um, that's a good question, Matt. Nobody's ever asked me that. Um, I'm trying to say that uh, the poorest country of the world is also in many ways full of riches, and that's something that I'd like to share. Um, and uh, I also want to say that for me, um, that part of my journey through life, which has been embedded in or bound together with Bangladesh has been a very central strand. Um, and thirdly, that in my dealings with the issues of the day, which I face in my daily professional or, or general life, um, uh, I am conscious of what Bangladesh has taught me 
uh, about the consequences of terrible inequality and how you can do something about it, um, inspired by people like Shahidu and, uh, and his team in Bangladesh. Um, because they, they're doers. They don't sit around and talk. They, t and they do it through photography, which ties in with my love of photography, but that's another different, different strand. But they have used photography to change the way people see Bangladesh, and that changes what Bangladesh is, ultimately. It's certainly connected. Um, uh, and because we're dealing with or talking about uh, the setting aside of inequality um, and inequity and injustice, and the camera is a tool, a very effective tool for doing that. As um, Cartier-Bresson said in a postcard to one of his fellow Magnum photographers who had been shot um, on the day that Mandela was released from prison in South Africa and whenever it was, 1980, 1987, can't remember now. Um, and he said in the postcard, um, uh, I'm sorry you're back in hospital and being wounded. Um, uh, just, just remember that your camera is a lot more effective than bullets in changing the world. That's a good line. Your camera is a flamethrower. It is more effective than bullets. That was the line. It was in a manuscript postcard. That's what, that's what I love about that. Yeah. Um, and I think being part of that um, mission, part of that movement, um, you know, makes you very makes you feel very alive. Um, yeah. I think I think that's how I put them out. Very, very difficult um, question. There's probably a lot more that could be said. No, it's a, it's a great answer, and you know, I'm, I'm just sat here now thinking, can I really go where I want to go with this? I, I've never really asked anybody this before, um, and you're very welcome to tell me to bugger off. But mm. um, I just think the way that you speak and your experiences, you've you've had the most amazing life. You know, we're looking at it from where I'm sitting, and. I don't want to blow smoke too much, but I really admire your willingness to explore these ideas of kind of, I guess, post-colonial life and coming mm. from a, a family that, you know, um, had certain jobs and played certain roles and you were brought up in a certain way. And I just wonder, um, my quick-fire maths based on when you said you were born would put you around 77. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Um, as of about two weeks ago. <laughs> Where are we now? No, as of three weeks ago. You know, yeah. Well, and I guess my question, if you're, if you're happy for me to ask it, is, you know, at the age of 77, when you look back on the life that you've lived, is it with fondness or is it, is it with regret that you are now 77 and you don't get to do it all again? Um, that's a lovely, complicated question. Um Regret's not something that I, I'm very good at. Um, rather like guilt, I'm not very good at that either. Um, uh, 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 and I think I, I, I mean by that, it's just not something that is, I find uh, necessary to leading a good life. Um, uh, but in terms of... Um, uh, 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 what was your question? Um, now it's sort of... I was going to say nearly over. That's not the way you put it. <laughs> I'm not going to climb Mount Everest at 77. Um, 
Although I did, I was very impressed by Chris Bonington climbing uh, high when he was 80. Yeah. That was just most amazing. With that lovely climber, you probably know him. Leo. Um, uh, who I, I did it with a while back. Lovely chap. Um, what was his name? I Leo you. Holding. Uh, Leo Holding, exactly. Um, uh, uh, but, I mean, Joe and I are still, uh, the last big journey we did um, uh, in terms of time off with uh, driving our old Rolls Royce around India for six months. Um, uh, and that was absolutely spectacular in so many ways. Um, and we've done one more since um, when we drove from um, uh, what you should call Danzig, now Gdansk, Gdansk, down to Athens, which is a good chunk of time. We spent four months doing that, very leisurely, spending in weeks, weeks here and there. Um, uh, and we always take a big library with us. Um, and so we spend our time reading and eating and talking to whoever we can talk to and drifting along, having a lovely time, um, which is not the, quite the kind of adventure you're talking about when you're kayaking through the ice fields of Greenland or wherever it is, um, which I've also done. Um, uh, uh, but uh, it, it's very perfect for us because we we just love talking. And we love talking A, to each other and B, to anyone else. Um uh, and there is a certain degree of adventure in an old, cranky rose like ours because there's a high chance it won't get to where you wanted to get it. <laughs> and uh, uh, and at 77, you can't sort of get out and push. Well, you can, but not for very far. <laughs> um, uh, and so the, I think what I'm trying to say is the adventure goes on, um, but you adjust the adventure to your different view of life, your different capacities, uh, your different status as an older person. Um, uh, the different amounts of money you might. I mean, we have, we have in a sense not more money now, but we have less expenses now, um, and so actually we can go off uh, and, um, uh, and 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 spend money where we never would have done when we were traveling when we were young. Because um, uh, the article I want to write on this is from rucksacks to Rolls Royces, um, and uh, yeah, they're both the same. They're just one's a bit bigger than the other, rather more expensive to run. Um, so I think the 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 adventure goes on. But I, uh, the adventure that has been so far is, um, I can't quite imagine how it could have been any better. Um, what a wonderful thing to think. You know, I, yeah. yeah. I, I, I do think that. And, and sharing it with, with others, um, or having shared it with others and continuing to do so, is, of course, as you said earlier on, we both said earlier on, is exactly what it's about. Um, and if they're your children as well, then so much the better. Yeah. Or, or their friends. Yeah. Or their, or their children, as is now about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that feels unimaginable, you know, as I said at the start, but before we recorded, I've got very, very young kids. So the idea yeah. that they will have children and I'll be their, you know, bald ex-explorer granddad <laughs> is quite exciting. Oh, it's, it's, it, 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 there's nothing to beat it, man. I, I, I really can tell you that. And the stories you could tell them, uh, 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 tall or not, as the case may be, <laughs> and they, they just love it. Uh, the, the parents, of course, know perfectly well that you're exaggerating or, or adding colour here and there. Um, but, of course, it adds to their view of life and it gives them a vision that then will come out as they live. Mm. And um, in doing that, you're perpetuating the values you all believe in. And these values really that we're talking about when it comes to inheritance. Um, uh, it's what you find valuable and, and what motivates you to do things, think things, uh, not take an aeroplane, um, um, be kind to people and and so on. Yeah. 
Well, that's a lovely place to leave it. However, <laughs> however, um, <clears throat> I um, I always ask the same two questions at the end of every conversation. So um, if you'll humour me, if you'll humour me, the first is what scares you. I've been asked that before, um, uh, in the context of what do you fear, which is the same thing. Um, and I find it a very hard question to to answer because. Um, I don't have fears that sort of linger in the back of my mind and suddenly come to the fore because of a certain turn of events. That's, um, uh, uh, I guess, luckily for the way I've lived or the way I, the way circumstances and life has, has treated me, I've never had that issue. Um, so I suppose going blind would be a fear um, uh, because that would cut out a whole, the whole visual aspect of life, which has been very central to me. Um, uh, hence um, the camera. Um, uh, going deaf would have the same thing. I suppose those are the two main things. Uh, I mean, you, you're going to die anyway, so there's no point being frightened. You've just got to get on with it or, or put it off as long as possible. Um, but going deaf doesn't happen to everyone, and nor does going blind. So I think I'd find those two a bit difficult. Not being able to walk would be a nuisance, but it wouldn't be in the same category as um, hearing and sight. Yeah. Okay, and finally, um, what brings you hope? Young people. Mine and others, importantly others. Um, and also, of course, the wonderful conversations you have at the age of 77 um, with your close friends of similar values. And we mentioned Nigel Windsor earlier on. Um, uh, but he, you know, he, he represents and stands for a whole raft of people who've been important in our lives, who we've, with whom we've shared important experiences, with whom we've shared um, uh, the sharing of experience with our respective children. Um, uh, and um, uh, and that um, uh, extraordinary gift of conversation. And I think those, um, those friendships are magical. And they were going to be magical when, um, when they die, or I hope for them when I die. Because they're there, they're in the bank. Nobody can take that away. You've got it. Um, uh, preferably write it down if we're given to writing, which is what I'm sort of slowly doing. But it doesn't really matter what it's done. You've got it, you've had it, you've, you've, you've been lucky. You've lived. Um, and I, I will go to my grave saying I have lived. What a wonderful way to end. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening. For more information, head to theadventurepodcast.co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.